McCartney's still out there rocking at eight. Didn't sure. you see McCartney on stage recently? Yeah, he's good. Phil? He lo- yeah. yeah, yeah, he was good. He was, he was great, even. <laughs> he was. He, uh, I saw him like four days before his 80th birthday. Okay, okay. But listen, the difference between 80 and 89 is, is pretty it's substantial. There's, there's yes. a lot going on there. But what about if you've just had baby blood pumped into your veins <laughs> consistently? <laughs> Hello, 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 and welcome everyone to another week of 1001 Album Complaints. This is the podcast where lifelong friends, musicians, and curmudgeons old before their time get together to complain (laughs) about albums on the list of Robert Dimery's 1001 albums you must hear before you die. Thank you very much for joining us this week on a special spooktacular episode (laughs) It is Halloween, everyone, and we are very stoked to be bringing you an album that you might have heard of before. I don't know. It might have crossed your path once or twice in your life. It is the album Thriller by Michael Jackson. I would just like to note before we get too far into the viewers or to the listeners who can't see me, I am dressed as Fred Durst today in honor of the greatest musician of all time. Mm. Hands up now, hands down. What you gonna do now? All right. I thought the red hat was a Trump thing that you. Had right. <laughs> Yay, boy! All right. Uh, very shortly, we are going to get into this album. Start picking out some tracks and doing deep dives on them, giving you a little background on the artist, on the recording history, all that good stuff. But before we do that, I'm gonna throw things over to Rob, who is gonna reach his hand into that listener mailbag and pull out some treats. So, Rob, take it away. Thank you. Thank you, Tommy. So today we have two bits of listener mail I wanted to go over. One is from Paul, who's coming to us from West Sussex in the UK. And he says, love the way you guys research the albums to add more context. The fact that you're musicians really gives the podcast more depth. It's making me revisit albums I've not heard of, sorry, not heard in a while and looking at them differently in most cases. So thank you. Awesome. And same here. That's I agree. That's the nicest thing anyone said to me this year. <laughs> that's why we're here. That's why we're here. And we got one more that I wanted to mention because it calls back to an old episode. I think one of uh, one of the group's favorite from the archive. Frankie from Nova Scotia writes, I listened to the Kid Rock episode yesterday. <laughs> oh, shit. Don't think yes. I've laughed so much during a podcast. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Nor am I tempted to actually listen to the record. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Yes. Don't listen I think to for, Kid Rock. For our listeners who haven't heard that podcast episode, I think the funniest part of that one, I wasn't on it, but Phil listened to the totally, wrong was, Kid Rock album, totally which is like doubly, doubly was, terrible. No, oh. you're, you're absolutely right. I, I'm actually looking it up right now so I can tell them the other Kid Rock record. Grit sandwiches for Christmas. Oh. I just remember the text from like the day before we're gonna record. It was like this album grit sandwiches for breakfast sucks. I'm like, why are you listening to that, Phil? Like, dude, what the fuck yeah, I'll agree. I, I, I yes, it does to, suck. I dare but... you to listen to like the first 45 seconds of that record. No, oh my. no, I think we pretty clearly put the marker down in the sand. Not worth your time. It's not. 
And hey, before I give up the mic, I just wanted to issue a quick correction. This episode has not been published yet, but I noticed something from last week's episode that I got wrong. Before we get a flood of mail, I'm going to I'm going to put this out there. Johnny Cash's first singles with Sun back in 1955 were things like Cry 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 and I Walk the Line, which is a fairly well-known song of his, right? It wasn't, I said it was Folsom Prison Blues was one of the early singles. That was incorrect. That came a few years later. So just want to make that clear that in those early days of Johnny Cash's life, as immortalized in the Joaquin Phoenix movie, he was doing stuff like Walk the Line. That's what came right after those early Elvis singles. Folsom Prison Blues was a few years later. All right. Well done. Thank you, Rob. Well, let's jump right in to... The album of the week, Thriller by Michael Jackson, a smash hit album. We're going to give some tweet length reviews and tell you what we thought about this for the week. But first things first, let's get a little bit of a sense of what we've been listening to this week. In case Thriller is completely foreign to you, we are going to listen to a bit of the title track on the album called Thriller. that jogged some of your memories of early childhood. It was pretty ubiquitous back in the 80s. Let's throw it around the room. I want to hear how did everyone's week go? What did you guys think of the album? Throw it at first to Adam. Fantastic week, dare I say it. But my quick review here is that it's November 1982. A 22-year-old Cal Ripken Jr. is named Rookie of the Year. A 7-year-old Drew Barrymore hosts SNL. I turned two years old, but most importantly, a 24-year-old Michael Jackson unwittingly releases a greatest hits album full of new material. Mm, Okay. Mm. Phil, what do you got for us? Man, I mean, I also had a great time with this record this week. I have been fortunate enough to really thoroughly revisit Michael Jackson's catalog a bunch over the last several years. I have a young child that was... uh, instantly smitten with Michael Jackson's music, specifically the Moog synthesizer era here, Thriller, Bad. That's not a tweet-length review, though, so I'm going to go with the great (laughs) Quincy Jones when I'm going to say jazz is the top, the hierarchy of music. That is his comment on Thriller. 
<laughs> okay. Not sure what that means in this context. Yeah. <laughs> but okay, right, it's, Rob. A, it's kind of a mystical sage. Well, first of all, I just want to say happy Halloween, everyone. I know we're kind of, of pre-taping yeah. this, but it is an exciting, exciting and spooky day. Hence why we're doing thriller. My tweet length review is is this. Listening this week to such a sonically immaculate album has me wondering why didn't someone tell Donald Fagan to include some hit songs on the Nightfly? <laughs> oh, come on. That is, that is great. Didn't he win a Grammy? <laughs> for the Nightfly? I don't know. I don't think so. I thought he was, he was at least nominated for a Grammy. For, I think he may have been yeah, nominated. Yeah. So this is Tom. I got a pretty succinct tweet length review. Still not tired of it. I've heard it so many goddamn times. Still not tired of it. Yeah, man. I was like, oh, man, I I wonder if listening to the Thriller this week is just going to get super old. I'm so familiar with so much of this. I'm really familiar with the hits. Not super familiar with the non-hits, which is what we chose to focus on this week, people. All one of them? I'm not tired of it. It still works. It still effing works. So... I was going to say, I felt the same thing, that especially when we decided to not focus on the hits, I was a little concerned. I even made a joke about it at the end of last week's episode, that there were some clunkers on here, but the doggone record is better than I remembered. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I, I'm, not gonna, I'm not trying to blow up our list here, but like one of the non-hits is a duet with Paul McCartney. That's like yes. your, that's like that's below the fold. You know what I mean? It's bottom half. Yeah. <laughs> and deservedly so, by the way. Deservedly so. It's that one's not a home run. But let's get a little bit of a background on the artist leading up to the album. He's Michael fucking Jackson. I you know, I don't know how much more I need to get into this, but we'll give you a little bit of run up here. He's Michael Jackson. He became a star at the age of six. Six years old, he became a star. I have a six-year-old that still does not consistently wipe their butt when they poop. It is amazing to me that he was a superstar at the age of six. It's kind of crazy. He put out 10 albums between 1969 and 1975 as the frontman of the Jackson 5. Then... Between 1976 and 1989, put out a further six albums under the Jacksons as the band. Now, granted, his involvement in the later Jacksons albums became less and less as his solo career was taking off. But 16 albums between 1969 and 1989, plus all of his six solo albums, like, I'm sorry, seven solo albums during that time. Incredibly prolific artist. It is one of those events in music. They refer to him as one of the first black crossover artists. He was the guy that made it so that the distinction between like the black records and the white records became a a non-issue. It's like, who gives a shit? Who puts it out? If it's good music, it's good music. Michael Jackson became the king of pop. Now, how did he become the king of pop? Starting in 1972, he started putting out solo albums. He put out five solo albums between 1972 and 1979 when he put out Off the Wall. How old was he in 
was he in 72? Just out of curiosity. And 72? Jesus. Yeah, what was he, 15? Let's see, when when was he born? Uh, he was born in 58. So in 72, he was... 14. Yeah, 14. Jeez, 14. Well, he got discovered early on with the Jacksons. Jacksons sure. 5 coming out of Gary, Indiana. Got on Motown. Basically, Quincy Jones was the yeah. the sort of the prophet man. He he blessed them into the Motown world, and they started making hits. And I mean, goddamn it, Quincy Jones does not have the magic touch. Let's yeah. we'll get that out of the way right now. Quincy Jones is yeah. a, is an effing hit maker. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, let's not forget <laughs> that he's been across multiple eras of music. He was the guy who told Frank Sinatra to swing Fly Me to the Moon and wrote that arrangement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. You're going to be like... he's He's been around... He's like, a, what is he, 180 years old? <laughs> seriously. He's, like, he's the guy who told Django Reinhardt it was okay to play the guitar with just two fingers. <laughs> like, Dude, he, has a, he put out an autobiography... Um, I want to say in like 2018, uh, I did not read it. I did read a piece about it <laughs> uh, on like, very bombastic <laughs> claims, if dude, I recall, crazy, right? Crazy, crazy claims. We don't even let's not even go yeah, down that road, yeah. but just uh, across again, a lot of different venues, genres, of life. and genres. ages. Yes, okay, yes, but like crazy claims. From a guy who has verified craziness that he has done in his life. <laughs> well, I'm going to give them a little bit more credence, you know? I know yeah. You yeah. I mean, this dude has lived a life. Yeah. And, you know, he's got the ear for talent. And there is nobody out there who will deny that Michael Jackson has a lot of talent. Let's just talk for a second about Off the Wall, the album that came out before this one, 1979 off the wall nine times platinum in the u.s nine million copies sold in the u.s it is of a different era it is a bit more in the disco era and a lot more of that um you know less poppy and a little bit more sort of disco sound to it but you put out an album that goes nine times platinum and then you go on tour and then you work on an album with your siblings, another Jackson's album. When you get ready to put out your next album, people are going to be pretty damned excited. And Michael knew that the pressure was on. Quincy knew that the pressure was on. You cannot put out another off the wall. You can't put out another one foot in disco album. You have to have something new. And apparently Michael went to Quincy and he said, and this is three years later. So 1979 to 1982, when they recorded this album, it's three years. That's a lot in the life of a very prolific artist. And what he said was, I want to make an album where every song is a killer. Every song's got to be a hit. And damn close. Yeah, I mean, he did not. He did not achieve that. But he came pretty damn close. Well, <laughs> but it, but as an ethos, let's talk. Let's stay on that concept for a second, because I know we all know what he's talking about. He was sort of saying, why does there have to be filler on an album? Why can't every song have the potential to be a single? Because in record industry parlance, it would be like, well, that's okay. That's a single, and that's not his premise. I think, and I, so I would argue, he was successful with it because as we listen to some of these, I agree, lesser songs. They could have been singles for lesser art. Are they as good as Billie Jean? No, they're not. But that's besides the point. 
There's a couple, there's, there's one song in particular, I'll save it so we get there. There's one song in particular that I think fits in perfectly on like uh, a sort of like 80s, like R&B jazz station, right? The same sound yeah. station is playing like George Benson songs, right? And right. We'll, we'll get there, but like, yeah. If Bruno right. Mars released any of these lesser <laughs> tunes today, they'd be mega totally. hits. Totally. That's, that's, yeah. that's a fact. You're tr- you are correct. And honestly, that mentality is a little bit more in line with the current day musical mentality of I don't have to make an album. I just have to make a hit song and then I'll release a hit song and I'll release maybe two or three hit songs. The album is almost inconsequential. Like, I feel like the album is dying as a format. We've talked about this many times before. People aren't Unless you're into, you know, lower tier indie bands or something, you're buying a vinyl, it's playlists, it's Mm -hmm. downloads, it's streams, it's all that shit. And so that is much more what people are into now. But he had that mentality. You're right, Rob. Why does there need to be filler? And so he hooks up with Quincy Jones and they go into the recording studio and they work on 30 songs. They put 30 songs down to try to find an album with those 30 songs. They end up selecting nine songs to put on this album, but they record 30 songs. The recording process costs almost $2 million in today's, in today's money. Well, as long as we're on the numbers part, because I read that to even get to those 30 they recorded, that Quincy Jones sort of perused 800 songs from various Yes, songwriters. I saw the same... I saw the same stat. It was like top 10 things you don't know about Thriller. And it was between seven and 800 demos mm-hmm. that they churned through to narrow it down. Yeah. Well, and then I heard that Michael Jackson said he had written 60 songs. And then I was listening to this podcast about it. Another podcast. How dare I? And not only did he write around 60 songs, because he was a very prolific guy, as we just mentioned, but his he would demo all those songs to get his mm-hmm. ideas on the tape. That's how he that's how his creative process worked. And if you listen to some of those Michael Jackson demos, they already sound amazing. So it's a all, lot of work was yeah, already I've, put I've, in. Yeah, the, the, the Billie Jean demo yeah. I've heard. It's like it's it's stupid, right? It's like this but like the original <laughs> versions of those, he was not a multi instrumentalist. Sure. He would do vocal takes of yep. a lot of what the track should sound like. He'd be going, you know, like, we should make a song that sounds like that. And it's like, yeah, that actually sounds pretty fucking badass. Like, we should definitely make a song that sounds like that. <laughs> this is this is some of the most interesting things I came across and I, is Michael Jackson talking about songwriting. I thought he had some really interesting comments on that and encapsulated some some good thoughts on it for people that are interested but one of the things he said that i liked that i pulled out was he said i try not to invent meaning to write the songs directly i try to discover i try to let it create himself and because his voice was his major instrument i think that i think that fits right he mm-hmm. just voiced through things and he let his mind or his voice finish them and that's how he wrote well it's that old um i think it was like a da vinci maybe apocryphal Da Vinci thing from back in the day where he talks about like, I'm just trying to find the sculpture in the block of marble. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not making a sculpture. I'm just taking away the excess. He releases the stone. That's not. Yeah. Yeah, Rob, You might want to timestamp that so you can, you can correct that next week. (laughs) (laughs) Michelangelo, you don't. Oh yeah. (laughs) I I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know either. 
but I'm was, familiar with the quote. You know, I have a different useless degree, not an art <laughs> history degree. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you're following up an album, sold 9 million copies, highly anticipated. So what do they do? They, as you talked about, they start sourcing just a shitload of stuff. Not only a bunch of demos, a bunch of different songwriters, a bunch of musicians. They really kind of throw everything at the wall to try to get a great album out of it. And we talked about it previously. The fucking track liner, the liner notes sound look like a Steely Dan album mm-hmm. there's so many different drummers so many different keyboard players for the first time yeah looking at the at the list of the personnel here on the album and it is well it's all, it is lengthy it's, it's all of toto right like toto's the like the band, band oh my god right? lukather's in yeah, it yeah, yeah. yeah you're so right Bacaro and steve Bacaro yes. and uh, Jeff Lukather. yeah yeah Wow. So, uh, Eddie Van so, Halen. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, good good call. I, Who, this, by the way, Eddie Van Halen did not get paid at all for his contribution to beat it. Even apparently, like later on in life, bitch, be like they didn't even pay me scale. I didn't even get like studio musician scale for the day that I came in to record this Yo, song. We were we were on something recently together. It was I think it was the last podcast I taped where Flea came up. Yeah, I I actually looked up. It, it, so it came up that he had played bass on uh, Mars Lost Volta. the Move. Yeah, Mars Volta. Oh, yeah, right. yeah, so it came up that he played bass on Bust the Move. I looked that up. He he swears he got paid two hundred bucks, and he fought mm. them for years, like personally, like the guys who made all the money, and basically said at some point, like I just gave up, like lesson learned, you know. Yeah. But like he got paid yeah. two hundred bucks for Bust the Move. So you're saying Steve, Eddie Van Halen got nothing. So Steve <laughs> Lukather, the yeah. guitar player and the bass player on Beat It, he played both guitar and bass on Beat It. <laughs> um, he was friends with Eddie Van Halen. He was mm-hmm. like, we should get Eddie Van Halen to do this solo, and apparently Quincy Jones called Eddie Van Halen many times and Eddie Van Halen would answer the phone and be like, Hey, it's Eddie Van Halen. Be like, Hey, this is Quincy Jones. He's like, I don't know who you are. Fuck off and hang up the phone. <laughs> and it took him forever to actually like take the call. And he was like, Oh, you're that guy. Okay. Yeah. I'll totally come in. <laughs> and the story is that they come in and they had these two tiny little amps set up in one room, like little tiny, like six inch speaker amps. And they were just cranked to the fucking gills and they put two six packs in the room and then over the course of two hours eddie van halen records the solo and also drinks 12 beers (laughs) i'm just picturing them leaving the beers like breadcrumbs into the studio and he walks along and he cracks one and moves another five feet and drinks until he's in the studio he's like all right we're doing it but that kind of tracks with these sort of like you came in got smashed and walked out and never talked about money at all (laughs) it's like uh, yeah well now we got you on this song thank god it's not gonna be a hit (laughs) yeah this would have also been the height of eddie van halen's powers right oh yeah this yeah this has a really fun little nugget we don't have to like dial it in but at 245 you hear a like a bang 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 right (laughs) 
somebody in the studio banging on the, the door because Eddie's just smashed <laughs> right and they're just like this is it like that's the one that's yeah. the one and then he just starts ripping and that's that the, the take that they kept had like somebody literally been like play the guitar I know exactly what you're <laughs> yeah at least they kept it on beat right yeah, they did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. dung 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 uh, so they have effing everybody on this album. It is mm-hmm. like Paul McCartney is on this album. It, freaking <laughs> Paul McCartney is on this album. It is so highly anticipated. However, the initial reaction was kind of muted. There's a story about one of the engineers who was helping to mix it because we'll take a step back. The process was that they recorded all these songs, they mixed all these songs, and then they brought it to basically like a session where they were listening along with CBS Records, I think that they were with, and they did like a listening session, and Michael Jackson leaves the room halfway through, and he's fucking sobbing in the other room, and he's like, it's all wrong. It sounds terrible. I hate it. And Quincy Jones is like, you are absolutely right. I hate this. It is totally mixed wrong. We have to redo the entire album. We're going to redo all of the mixing. So then over the course of like October and November, they spend a week per song remixing the album. And they were like, we have to get it in stores for Christmas 1982. Like we cannot (sighs) miss Christmas 1982. Everybody is really anticipating this album. They apparently had... Guys on motorcycles sitting outside of the studio ready to take master recordings to private planes because they had all of the record factories that they could have on (laughs) standby, ready to print the album. And like, he's like, it is so stressful. Like you're literally, and they're like, are you fucking done yet? Are you done yet? Are you done yet? They're like, no, we're not done yet. Like, just give us a little bit more time. the one week of mixing per song is so insane because I and these are minimum twelve hour days I'm sure. But the the thing I heard too is that they were afraid of actually passing the tape through the head that many times, so they took the precaution of like bouncing out the the rhythm section which was already mixed onto another master tape and setting it aside so that they could put it back in in the final yeah. mix. Yeah. Because you're just wow. gonna play it out. You don't want the degradation of the tape being exactly. like through there so many times. Yeah. And I thought this was I, I heard this too. You maybe were about to say this, Tom, but it's not one of the songs we're covering. But I think it's a nice encapsulation of how creativity how the creative process works, which is they did ninety one mixes for Billy Jean and then they eventually went with mix number two. i was not gonna say that but that is a great factoid because you know this is something that if you have not experienced this process it is hard to understand it but when you are mixing a song and you are listening to each individual piece for so many times through it stops being music it turns into something else and you're like, I have focused so much on the the kick drum sound, or I focus so much on the bass sound or these backup harmony sounds. And you're like, I got it totally dialed in. 
And then somebody who hasn't been a part of the process listens to it, and they're like, why the fuck is the kick drum so loud? Like, why did you do that? You're like, it stopped being music to me. I just, it turned into this weird sound project that I, like, I didn't think about what an actual finished project product was going to sound like. And it really is one of those, they say, like, you say the word a word so many times like if you say the word like bowl 50 times in a row it just loses yeah, all they, meaning it was in a ted lasso episode and there's an actual word for it where it just your brain just interprets it as a sound no yes. longer is the word yeah yeah and music gets like that in the mixing process specifically i i find it's i i think it's really interesting as well because uh again people might not be super familiar with the, the mixing process is that you could record a guitar and you solo that track, and it sounds like heaven by itself. Everything is fat and perfect, and then you throw it into a mix, and it's completely wrong. So you have to simultaneously recognize the solo instrument as itself, but also completely change it so it fits in the mix. Yeah, it's like a context. With guitar, yeah, it's a context yeah, thing, right? With guitars, less is more sometimes, so mm-hmm. you actually have to maybe cut out all of the low end. Mm-hmm. If you were to solo that guitar, it sounds terrible and tinny and, and high-endy, and shrilly, and then you add it into the mix, and it cuts perfectly. Well, mm-hmm. Can we add another thing that's happening in the mix? I totally agree with that. Yeah, it's it, it, but also the idea that the guitar, because there might be so many things going on, there are so many things going on in some of these songs, that they will also be deciding in the mix stage where and where not the guitar even goes. So that you'll, you'll hear in these songs, rhythm guitar just comes in, for a third of the chorus and then leaves mm-hmm. and it's not to be yep. heard again until you get back to that one specific part yeah, again yeah. and it, who knows how long the guy played <laughs> he's in there yes. doing the whole song course, right yeah because yeah, yes. if you listen and you've listened to that track in isolation it sounds terrible You're like right. what is what is <laughs> yes, what is wrong right. with you why did you not <laughs> fill this part out this is not a complete part You're like well there's actually 30 parts and so everything can't be playing all at once. That would just be, as right. Phil, you said on the Mars Volta album, uh, album, that would be sonic maximalism, which is often <laughs> not the right choice. Yes. Well, the, the, the one of the things I was thinking, you know, we're, since we're on the topic, is that this album, how do I put it? This For anyone who is curious about what a very deeply produced piece of music sounds like but maybe doesn't want to go into the classic rock genre is sort of over the beatles how dare you or over pink floyd how dare you (laughs) this is production class for the masses listen to this on good headphones i know adam always makes that suggestion but in this case i have to wholeheartedly agree (laughs) you will immediately start here and presume i'm presuming that a lot more people just like and appreciate this music to begin with but you this is one of those ones where you're going to slap on those nice decent headphones and maybe even close your eyes you're going to immediately start hearing stuff you have not heard before and you'll start to see a little behind the curtain of what production what we're talking about right now you know, I want to just add, since we're, we're staying in a very general sort of like just talking about this record in a very general and sort of production way, I think something we haven't touched on here at all is, we, we sort of hinted at it, Tom did when he was back at Off the Wall, like this is a major, major shift for Michael Jackson and really for anything sonically. Like this was a new sound, right? And the, the piece we haven't touched on is the insane role of the Moog Model D synthesizer on this record. It is pretty much the only synthesizer you hear. It's all... Really? It's 
mostly one synthesizer. Being wow, played. all those pads. All, yeah, that, uh, yeah, it's all it's wow. all being and it's a really, you know, you think of synthesizers going back further, but like the Moog Model D is really the one that made the synthesizer, right? That's the one that was, you know, in like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, um, definitely in later Pink Floyd records. So that came out in 1970. And when this came out in 82, right? So it's like, that comes out in 70. It would have started making appearances in prog rock in the mid to late 70s. But you're still out there. You're still in like synthesizers are weird. Devo. 1980 like this would have brought it more to the and boingo boingo and like that it would have started to bring it more to the forefront but like and i'm not like a huge synth guy but like it, it you know there obviously there's a whole other synthesizer world right electronic world that's like participating in this but like this also is a very very bold synth forward move that wasn't really present in nothing like this right yeah. prior to this you know, it's interesting because one of my notes earlier was like, how do you talk about Thriller? Thriller has defined sound since basically I was cognizant of the world. And it's like, how do I even think about a, you know, a pre-Thriller, post-Thriller world? It's just like Thriller is just this immutable thing that has existed. And you're right. A big part of it was this incorporation of synth into very digestible and accessible pop that I don't think had existed before. Everything you're talking about is on the fringe of accessibility. Totally. Can I bring up, since, since you mentioned synth and prog rock, this is a fun little anecdote. I want you guys to pull up Spotify, and we're going to drop this clip in. But... What Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson were listening to for inspiration was a prog rock album by John Anderson of Yes and Vangelis called Friends of Mr. Cairo. And specifically, there's one track on there, State, State of Independence, that where they basically took inspiration for the Billie Jean bass line. So let's drop that in. the synth bass right it's got that synth bass sound well i mean it's got more than that but like okay so just a little weird anecdote about billy jean because that synth bass line is very reminiscent of the billy jean bass line and they acknowledge that and i think they even talked to john anderson about it at the time and he was totally cool with it but i thought it was interesting that you mentioned that synth was moving from prog rock and the weird score music of the 70s <laughs> epitomized by Vangelis into like, pop music a, at that time. I have a great factoid here. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> All right, so they're mixing the album, taking a shitload of time. They finally get the product. They get it to those motorcycle couriers who get it to those private planes who <laughs> get it out to the record plants. One of the engineers says that literally he left the mixing session in LA and he gets back to London two days later and there's a review of Thriller in <laughs> the paper two days later and the the title is The Thrill is Gone <laughs> whoa yeah <laughs> wow Not a fan 
kind of a muted response to the album when it first dropped. It wasn't the the seismic event that bomb that everybody thought it was going to be. Expecting it to be, yeah. Then there were two things that changed basically the fate of pop music forever from there on out. And one of them was early 1983. There is a a televised special showcase for... Barry Gordy's Mm -hmm. like anniversary with Motown and they're like, all right, well, we're going to put on a performance, a bunch of Motown and former Motown artists are going to do a, like a Barry Gordy tribute and Michael Jackson does Billie Jean and he does the moonwalk for the first time ever. Michael Jackson does the moonwalk and people go fucking nuts. (laughs) They are like, what in the hell is this? Apparently he was, like super nervous and this is a guy who's been performing since he was six like he's going to do a new dance move at the beginning of billy jean and like when they're playing it and apparently he and quincy jones fought a lot about billy jean that he wanted the intro to be way shorter and michael was like it has to be long so i can dance that's why we need the longer intro and he does the moonwalk and People yes. are like, what in the fucking hell is this? This is amazing. And the buzz starts around this album. And immediately people start buying the album and they start realizing it's pretty damn good. What a showman. Awesome. I mean, to think like that's just. I got chills badass. hearing you go through that. I've never heard that. I didn't realize yeah, those yeah. two events were connected. And it makes me realize, Tom, that what with Ghost Beef having just come out last week, we need a dance. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, I, yeah. yeah we got to be the slicer. We got to do something like <laughs> the slicer. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I, have a, I have a theory with the moonwalk. I have a, my theory is that it's all in the pants. There's actually a special cut to the pant at the knee, so you can kind of pinch the leg, disguising the motion of the leg. That's hmm. my theory on the moonwalk. So it, so, so, so it, it appears the leg is moving less than it is. I don't think is, the moonwalk requires theories. I, I moonwalk <laughs> naked all the time. Have you ever so. seen anybody do it, though? Other than Michael, like, have you ever actually seen somebody do it? And you're so, like, yo, he nailed it. He did. Michael Jackson didn't create the moonwalk. He, it was a guy. Uh, James uh, Brown? No. Shalamaz <laughs> Je- Jeffrey Daniel. Shalamaz Jeffrey Daniel, a guy with a last name and then two first names for his two last names, <laughs> created the moonwalk, taught it to Michael Jackson, and that was apparently like totally cool with him taking it. Michael Jackson called it the moonwalk, which is also a pretty fucking awesome name. It's a great name. And, yeah, yeah, it's a great good name. on him. But you know, Phil, to your sartorial uh, alteration theory here, you know, Michael Jackson did have a patent for special shoes that he would wear on stage there would he would have little nails put in the stage and he had a shoe Mm. that he would slide onto the nail and then it would stick the shoe there so he could do that 45 degree lean Uh, that was later though right yeah it was definitely later that was later but like michael jackson's an innovator in the world dance (laughs) is what i'm trying to get yeah yeah. but i know but that that actually shows consistency that he realized hey it worked one time now when i put out bad i need another new dance move to go with this yeah and it worked again yeah, because Bad sold like 19 million copies or something like that. Yo, yo, unpopular opinion. I think Bad is better than Off the Wall. Mm. I actually would agree with you on that one. Oh, I great. like Bad. Okay, I like Bad. It's because you're smart. 
But let's let's stick on to <laughs> reason number two why Thriller became immensely popular and Michael Jackson became an international superstar. And it was the music video. Now, there's a couple of different stories that go around about this. There's basically two versions of the story. One version is that, and this is Bob Pittman from MTV, says that he was like specifically putting out the call to black artists to make music videos because MTV, we've talked about it before, they had 250 music videos that were like, that was all that had been created at the time because they'd launched in 1981. 1982, 250 music videos exist. And that is like a day's worth of programming. It's like you just can't have a channel that is devoted to playing music with only one day's worth of programming. And so his account is that he said, hey, we really need music videos. And Michael was like, I could dance like a motherfucker. And people really liked it when I danced to Billie Jean. And so I'll make a video for Billie Jean. There's also another version where the president of CBS Records, Bob Niklov, called up MTV and said, if you don't play Michael Jackson's music videos, I'm pulling all of CBS Records videos from your catalog. And so screw you guys. Like, you have to play Michael Jackson. I don't know who I believe there, but I kind of can't imagine that they were like, we're not playing Billie Jean. What is this? What, what do you think this is? Like, I Well, that's funny you say that because I heard sort of half of an anecdote. sounds like the other half of the one you just said that MTV was originally hesitant to put something that they didn't consider rock music into the into the rotation. And that was some of the pushback. But but you also I, I I remember there was there was a famous YouTube clip from long long ago from David Bowie in the eighties going on MTV and yelling at them for not playing enough black artists. I remember yes. that circulating yeah. for a long time. Yep. And so I, again, I don't know who to believe. They're both very self serving anecdotes here. So and both of them come directly from the source. Both these guys are like, no no, I was the one who said Michael Jackson should make music videos. Like oh, I was the one who got Michael Jackson's music videos played. But. It become a big hit. He puts out a music video for Billie Jean, puts out a music video for Beat It, and then he makes the music video for Thriller, which is a 14-minute video. Apparently, after it was released, MTV was playing it twice per hour, which is 28 <laughs> minutes out of 60 minutes. Uh, I remember I was watching MTV a couple years after this, and they were still playing it oh, constantly. Yeah I, I, yeah, I definitely watched the long form specials about the making oh, of. Oh, yeah. 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 Because I think what it really did, its impact cannot be overstated. It completely elevated the genre of music video to totally. something other people would want to then go and partake of. It was a film. It was a short and, film. And really. it was also Absolutely. like, it kind of had like a fun, like, it had a really fun, like, holding two mirrors up to each other thing where, like, he's in the theater with the girl, but then he's kind of in the movie, and then he's, uh, you know, he's back in it. It's like, what part is even? It's like, you know, I was young. I was like, I, and for me, it was a lot of, like, what even happened there? Like, wow, I'm confused. That's fun. It, it gave me nightmares. I remember watching Absol it. I was terrified. Yeah. It, was one yeah. of the, it was the scariest thing in my life for well, a while. Yo, so I, uh, my kids like Michael Jackson a lot, and my, my youngest uh, likes the song Thriller but actually prefers a cover of it because kids bop yeah like a, because, well, yeah because he associates the real one with the video which he is horrified of <laughs> it's like pretty he's scary all at, like, he's all at once for like 20 seconds can't listen to the song oh there's some <laughs> there's some really serious makeup effects going oh, on yeah. there that sure. is it's like walking dead 30 years early yeah, yeah. totally 
And, you know, we've talked about this. Like, there's no money for nothing if there's not Thriller. Like, the there's no Madonna music videos. There's no yep. Cherish. There's no any of those if there's not Thriller. It was... I was talking to my wife, who was born in, like, late December 1983, after the album came out. And she has vivid memories of them playing the music video for Thriller, like, in grade school. And being like, hey, check this out. She's probably, like, (laughs) nine years old. So that's nine years after the release. And it's still a thing that people are playing. What I I recall about it was that even into the early 90s, when MTV's programming was still nearly 100% music videos a lot of their programming would be countdowns of the best music videos. And it wasn't even a question of what was going to be number one. Perennial number one. Yes, exactly. No chance anything. Like, if you were to play the best music videos of all time right effing now, Thriller's number one, I defy you to name a better music video. Madonna's Express Yourself, maybe? Maybe? But no. I still think Thriller is better than that. But we so we we did talk about it in the Madonna episode, right? Is that clearly some artists were a little forward thinking, and sounds like Michael Jackson was chief among them, perhaps, and the most forward thinking among them, among them, perhaps, who saw MTV as an opportunity, as a leverage, and they took advantage of it, and they spent money on videos, and they spent time on videos, and it skyrocketed careers. Madonna was one such person. Michael Jackson, clearly, another one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, Thriller, the music video massive success credited as basically the savior of mtv it, it is one of the reasons why that format became what it became let's do a little bit of thriller by the numbers this is not michael oh, jackson by buckle the numbers. Up. This is thriller by the numbers okay it's the best-selling album of all time it has gone 34 times platinum in the u.s <laughs> that means it sold 34 million copies in the u.s alone 15 times platinum in the UK, 16 times platinum in Australia. Basically anywhere that they record album sales, it has gone multiple times platinum. It is insanity. At one point in 1983, they were selling a million copies a week of this album. They were literally like they could not print them fast enough to get them into the stores. It was flying off the shelves. The funny thing is that... No single on this album was actually the number one selling single of 1983. Nothing ever hit number one? No, it hit number one, but it wasn't the best-selling single of 1983. Hmm. Best-selling single of 1983, Every Breath You Take by The Police. That was Ooh. the number one selling mm, single. Okay. Boosh. Damn good song. Don't get Challenge. <laughs> but I got to think that part of that is because so many people bought the actual album, and they weren't buying the single. Right, yeah. right. Maybe so. Um, so... Well, also, they released the Paul McCartney duet as the first single. That couldn't help. They did. <laughs> it they took did. the wind out of the sails there. Oh, help. man. Yeah. I think that might be where the, the Thrill is Gone headline came from. <laughs> this solidifies Michael Jackson as the king of pop. And then he went on to have just an obscenely ridiculous career. I think Bad sold 19 million copies in the U.S. Like, Bad is also one of the top-selling albums of all time. And so, like, you got nine times platinum in the U.S., for off the wall, then 34 times platinum for Thriller, then 19 times platinum for Bad. That's a pretty killer three run, three album run right there. I, yeah, it does man. not get much better than that. They estimated that in <laughs> 1989, um, 
1989, Michael Jackson made $125 million from sale, album sales and from touring. What? And that's 1989 money. $125 yeah. million. Man. So <laughs> we've talked a lot about Michael. We've talked a lot about the build-up to this. We've talked a bit about the recording of this. We're going to start getting into some tracks. And what did we do here, people? Do you need to hear us talk about how Billie Jean is great? Do you need to hear, hear us talk about how the Eddie Van Halen solo on Beat It? You do not. We're going to talk about the five worst tracks on Thriller. That is what we're going to do. We're going to jump in and take what I personally chose as the five worst tracks on Thriller. So if you have any complaints about which tracks we picked as the worst ones, you can blame it all on me. I think that these are the five worst tracks on Thriller. And we're going to jump in right away with the second song on Thriller, Baby Be Mine. It's amazing. It's just so hard to pick bad tracks on this album. My God. Everything about this song is just amazing. The alternate snare hits that the have the claps snare hits. on yeah, them. Totally. Right, yeah. It's every other snare hit is the clap. I love the way that that's that's my number one note for the song. The way it like opens up the beat, right? Because you got the clap. Yeah. And, and I also think I can't tell if it's every time or they mix it up, but if you listen to the drum, the intro drum fills real kit, and you can hear the clean kick drum there because they 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 stack something with it. There's like a like an e drum, like a yeah, it's so dope. <laughs> and this a great mix of heavy synth and organic horns. Good call, right? So I know it's actual horns. But the way that they're layered with the synth, they almost sound like bad synth horns, but they're not. And I, I, I appreciate that. Uh, I'll let somebody else talk about that modulation well, that they I, do. I on. love how <laughs> those backup vocals are like, mine, all mine. Totally. Kind of sound like synth. Yeah. Like they, they have a little, like the way that they're mixed and the way that they sit, it kind of sounds mm-hmm. like a synth line, but yeah, it's clearly yeah. him doing a, a beautiful harmony. And they're real, they're real tight. They got that real like Michael McDonald, like real Asia, tight. like they're like the yeah. notes are real close together, right? Yeah. Everything on this album is tight. <laughs> yes. I know. Yes. <laughs> I mean, spoiler alert, as, as if you haven't realized yet, I'm going to fawn over just about 
everything on this list of terrible so, five. Yeah, so, Before diving in, I had singled this song out as the one I remembered as being bad. It might be bad in relation to the mega, super mega hits next to it, but it is definitely not a bad track. In fact, I was humming this on the way to sit down on my laptop for this call. <laughs> It's a like, very successful song. It, this, this song rips. This song. This was the one that, like, when I came back to this record as an adult, this was the one that stood out to me as being like, really. If if you had asked me to make a, a five best on Thriller, I like like personal best, right? I, I, this would have been on my list. I I, 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 I feel so, like confident. Yeah. The reason I included it is because I feel like this is the most backward looking song on the album this feels a little bit more off the wall to me sure than it does bad like this looks backwards a little bit more than looks forward and it still has a little bit of that disco feel to it killer i like disco i got nothing wrong with disco but at the time i feel like this was probably one of those ones that people that's a a fun comparison because i do think like i i totally agree with what you're saying but like sonically something about it is just so much more like it's coming off of a spaceship compared to off the wall it's just all the synths. It's got the one, I like the synth. It's got the one that's hard panned, like right, that's sort of like a squiggly little single notes. And then it's got this other thing that does like these chords and it bends them. So cool. <laughs> so this song was written by Rod Temperton, yeah. who we talked about, they sourced so many demos for this album. However, Rod Temperton, who was a longtime writing partner of Quincy Jones, Ended up writing three of the songs on this album, including the song Thriller. And so... I thought this one was written by Jackson and, and McCartney, that they got together or something. You sure? No. I know Temperton wrote... Baby Be Mine? No. Baby Be Mine's a Temperton song. Jackson and McCartney is The Girl Is Mine. Oh, The Girl Is Mine. I'm sorry. I thought we were talking yeah. about that song. All right. My bad. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. We're talking about my, Baby Mine. My mistake. My, oh, mine. They are kind of similar song titles, we have to admit. Yeah, they are. They are. So wait, uh, we're going to jump into it in a second, but you're going to defend The Girl Is Mine? <laughs> I'm looking forward to that part I of the will, conversation. I'll take the job of defending it's Girl It's better than I had remembered. All I'm <laughs> saying is that it is it. successful at what it's aiming to do. Uh, fair it, enough. It could fair be enough. a hit if, you know, it could be a hit. This song is a great example of something Rob had mentioned about rhythm guitar. So Steve Lukather... Right, you could picture him in the studio and basically playing nonstop for four and a half minutes. And when you listen to the song in the left channel, once every five seconds, you hear a little ding a ding, <laughs> ding a ding ding. It's it's so sparse, but it's it's perfect. Yep. If he if he was just strumming the whole time, this is not actually way overboard. Steve Lukather though. This is a guy named David Williams. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. I was thinking it was track three. My bad. Yeah. Come on, guys. Let's get with the program here. Right, We're talking about let's, Baby let's, Be Mine, no, not I, the let's, girl. Let's, let's, I know Baby Be Mine. Let's move but... on to track three just because it seems like that's where everybody's at. But before we do, what the hell happens <laughs> in Baby Be Mine at three minutes and 33 seconds? That Holy crap. That modulation did we like, need it? defies. Did we is need that it? a modulation no. or is that tape magic? I think it's a modulation. I think it's legit. But 
there's no transition cord. It's like yeah. you you blink and all of a sudden you're a, a half or a whole step up and you're like, what the hell happened? I think yeah, yeah, and, and it's weird because I think Michael Jackson actually hits a lower note. It's like it's like the note he's hitting in relation to the chords is different now. Yeah, but like half the, the time Mike is like stacked nine times on himself, so he's hitting all the notes <laughs> <Yes>. every time. <laughs> yes. Yes. yes, agreed. Agreed. But here's Rob. I would agree with you that right when it happens, you're like, "Oh, that's a fuck up," and then two seconds later, you're like, "No, no, we're good." Like, <laughs> right into it. Okay, beautiful. beautiful. I like I it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, this this is the song. I just think this speaks to the song that as recently as 2019. This was being performed by the Quincy Jones Orchestra. Is Quincy Jones still alive? Is he in the Quincy Jones Orchestra? He's <laughs> probably not in the ah, orchestra, but he's probably yeah, just he's collecting alive, so royalties yeah. on it. Yeah, so I, who knows what his role in the orchestra is. But this is a song that, like, you know, the Quincy Jones sort of, you know, project performs. I mean, he's 89 years old. I kind of doubt that he's actually doing anything in the orchestra right now, unless he's pulling Willie Nelson, which he might be, because he's I, a fucking I, vampire. I, so. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if he's just sitting backstage, cashing checks. And- yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, it's true. You never know, though. You really never know, because McCartney's still out there rocking at eight. Didn't you sure. see McCartney on stage recently, yeah, he's good. Phil? He lo- yeah. yeah, yeah, he was good. He was, he was great, even. <laughs> he was, he, uh, I saw him like four days before his 80th birthday. Okay, okay. But listen, the difference between 80 and 89 is is pretty dramatic. It's substantial. There's, there's yes. a lot going on there. But what about if you've just had baby blood pumped into your veins consistently? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or, or Quincy Jones, who's like pushing 90 and has like a legitimately hot young daughter like in Rashida Jones. Like... And I'm not trying to be creepy about it. Rashida Jones is just beautiful and like my age. And I'm like, how old were you when you had her? Good <laughs> lord, dude. Uh, but let's we're gonna jump on. Let's just move on to the next song. I the one that I'm actually the most interested to talk about. The girl is mine. <laughs> She walks right in my dreams Since I met her from the start I'm so proud I am the only one Who is special in her heart The girl is mine The doggone girl is mine I know she's mine Because the doggone girl is mine She's yours, not mine Sending roses and your silly dreams Really just a waste of time Because she's This song sucks And I want to you hear know, you guys Tom, tell me why it does This song suck. is actually not that bad <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Adam, I think it sounds of sucks <laughs> Well, I think you're wrong <laughs> You, go fuck you keep dreaming you. I don't believe it <laughs> Talking in the midst of songs Is not, it's oh, not a good God, plan it's bad. Generally, yeah. Yeah. duet talking no. This is like sing talking too. It's very odd, very, very odd. So there's a great anecdote from Steve Lukather and Jeff Picaro. Steve Lukather like is recounting this that they play guitar and drums on this song, and apparently they get in the studio and they're like, 
you know, all right, let's see, we're playing Paul McCartney. He's my hero. We're playing Michael Jackson. He's like the <laughs> baddest guy on the planet right now. Let's get this song going. <laughs> and apparently they get to the line, the doggone girl is mine, and they both just start cracking up and like ruin a take. It's pretty like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> the doggone girl is, is mine? Like, you, that means someone wrote down doggone. <laughs> doggone. May have I even looked up the spelling of it. Wrote it down on yeah. a weird sheet. <laughs> and then it stayed there. <laughs> yeah. So apparently Michael Jackson, who is credited as the sole writer on this song, but we won't get too much into it, but there's been allegations that Michael Jackson takes sole writing credit on a lot of songs where it was much more of a group effort. And he is just sort of like, you should just be happy that like you get to be in a Michael Jackson song. So I'm just going to take sole writing credit and it'll be good for your career. Don't worry about the royalties type of thing. But either way, Paul McCartney clearly not worried about that. Um, so Michael Jackson gets sole writing credit on this. Apparently, Michael Jackson never swore. He was like absolutely no foul language. And so when well, that's how you know he's a be, good guy, you know, kind of like Bill Cosby. Oh, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Unimpeachable character. Jehovah's Witnesses <laughs> yes. can do no wrong. So apparently when he would want to say something was bad or somebody was like being an asshole like like if somebody was being an asshole to him he'd be like oh man you're stinky like you're stinky guys or like <laughs> when something was like shitty would happen he'd be like oh that's real stinky and so apparently he had the nickname of stinky because like that was no, like no, his no, big no, no. diss he, no 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 his nickname was smelly I heard oh, Quincy smelly, Jones. Girl, smelly, not not stinky. And he smelly. used it as a good term. He called when he when he really liked to groove. He called it smelly or smelly jelly. And then Quincy Jones started calling him that. And it's really creepy because I heard some that like interplay between them on that. Yeah, uh, I did hear that it was when he thought things were bad. He said they're smelly. But I also, yes, you're right. It was smelly, not stinky, and that was where the nickname. Maybe came he from. just threw that word around generally. Unclear. Possibly <laughs> that was his like version of fuck. He's just like this fits everywhere, right? right? <laughs> It's getting creepier the longer, yeah, yeah, the more we talk about these these words. But so here's the one thing I want to talk about the the sing talking part. There's a clip that was going around the internet a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you guys saw this. It is Michael Jackson on stage in the early 90s in like Germany or something like that. And he starts talking to the crowd and he forgets to do the high voice. And he just talks like a normal guy. And he's like, yeah, everybody, we're going to start doing this. But then he's like, oh, well, you know, oh, sorry. Yo. <laughs> you know, like his, the affectation, the high voice is an affectation that he puts on. It was not his actual speaking really? voice. Which is why the like, oh, Paul, I love her too. Don't, she's my, she told me she'd love me forever. Is way creepier when you realize that he's doing this kind of like little kid voice. That's crazy. So. Continue to defend the song here, everybody. Let's go. <laughs> All right. So the bridge, this is a fantastic bridge. And the fact that it hits at the 125 mark, which also means this song should have should end about two <laughs> minutes early because the, the last three minutes of it is just nonsense. But the bridge in this song is fantastic. I, I love where it goes. I think the bridge itself actually modulates and then comes back to the original key. So, Tom, I assumed you would like you. I know you're a bridge man. You like Carol King and, and her bridges. I thought that this bridge was just fantastic. Listen, it's a well-constructed song. But if you're trying to make me picture in my head, 
Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson in a fist fight over a lady. I can't buy it. It's the lamest fight ever. It's a little slap fight. It was like, <laughs> no, no, no. I thought this was interesting. I heard Michael Jackson comment on what a bridge is for, and maybe the audience would like hearing about this if they're curious about what these, how these different song parts are intended to function. It's something we've talked about on this podcast before, but I thought he put it somewhat eloquently. He said, what a bridge is for. It takes you from A to B. It's escapism. Escape from hearing the same mundane thing you've been hearing because the ear gets tired of hearing the same thing. And then when it comes back, it's so much stronger. Yes. That is fantastic. Yeah, well done, Michael. I really can't. I can't deny that that is exactly what a bridge should do. And let's talk about a song with a pretty damn killer bridge. We're going to move over to the title track on the album. We played a little bit of it earlier. We're going to dive back into it. Let's do a thriller. You close your eyes and hope that this is just imagination. Carry on, but all the while, you hear a creature creeping up behind. You're out of sight. I got this feeling. It's 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 as, it's about as sweet as it gets, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> love that bass line, the bass line, that 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 like synth bass. I mean, this is, this is the beginning, of, in my opinion, of this sort of synth bass eight oh eight sound, right? Or you want me to tell yeah, you that sucks? This sucks. I hate this shit. <laughs> no, this song's <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> Just that like boom at the beginning yeah. of the the bass line. Oh, and it has it's great. It has like the space landing synth on like one side. It's like, you know, like, uh, you know, it's great. It really, it really does have like a spooky thing. It's like they knew what they wanted the video to look like before, you know. Yeah, it's very, it's very textural. I always, I'd laugh when I hear this now and think about how Vincent Price, who at the time was a famous movie star, or not at the time, sorry, he was an aging movie star at the time, but this is almost certainly the only place people would recognize him in 2022, right? Absolutely. Oh, most definitely, yeah. And that laugh that he does at the end, like, is like as Vincent Price is a grandpa, if like his kids tell him a joke, does he laugh like that at it? It's the most <laughs> sinister laugh I've ever heard. It really sounds like this man is about to murder you and just laughing over you as he does it. Also, they I, make they make these ridiculous dog howls work. Like they fire those things off through the whole song. Like, no, especially in the intro, they're just firing off dogs whenever they feel like <laughs> wolves, wolves, sorry. Werewolves. Werewolves. <laughs> I read. I this. I think it's a very well written song by Rod Temperton again, a British songwriter whose other credits include the Michael McDonald hit "Yamo Be There." <laughs> <laughs> 
But and I don't even know that song. <laughs> but it sounds terrible. <laughs> you never heard Yamo be there? You should listen to Yamo be there. It sucks. <laughs> But it's a fun suck. It's a fun suck. <laughs> but, you know, you can go and search. I recommend you go search. There's a lot of YouTube videos about, there's definitely one about this song that I watched, but probably a lot of Thriller, where they're showing, going through the stem tracks, isolating the vocals or isolating a single vocal line. And just literally, there are 13 Michael Jacksons singing different notes that blend together into this perfect, crazy harmony throughout the song. Oh. That uh, we talked about the I like I talked about the bridge on the lead in where it's like there's no escaping the jaws of the alien this time open wide. Oh my That's god! That's like thirty seven voices so and it's so good. Amazing. It's amazing. It's so good. So good. The foley on this song is terrible. Absolutely terrible foley work. The dog bark. There's like a door opening sound at one point that sounds no, like no, the dogs are hilarious. <laughs> really, it's really bad. The bad, it's bad foley. Let's let you know. Let's get that out there. <laughs> I think it's successful. At what it's trying to, to do. Yeah. Oh, it's definitely successful. I'm not saying it's even distracting, but when you are listening to a great song like this and trying to come up with shit to talk on it, the Foley's <laughs> the first place you're going to go to because everything else is pretty fucking on point. That, it's like right at like 350 or something like that where they do the killer, thriller, mm-hmm. killer, thriller tonight. That's so A couple good. of transitional That's chords so in there. Yeah. yeah. I don't even well, know how you come up with that. Well, speaking of transitional chords, the part that Tom just referenced... Um, it has this great little diminished chord descending thing. The the killer thriller, killer thriller. No, no, the, there, the, there's oh, no the escaping this no time. Escaping the, all, the yeah. jaws of the alien this time, yeah. Yeah, that, that's a great little passage for your this, chord chart. Is this, is this in like a keyboard key? Is this in like A flat or like F sharp major or something? Ooh, I, I actually yes. don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, we covered this in the chop poorly. No way. Uh, yeah. That's awesome. How'd it go? A lot of energy. It was yes. it was I for think... a Halloween show where we were all dressed in ridiculous outfits. So I think Phil, you were Aquaman. I was Aquaman, <laughs> and Rob was the Incredible Hulk with green body yes. paint on. Yes, and, yes, uh, that yeah. is awesome. And it took so long for that green paint to come off my body. So many showers. Yeah, James was the Silver Star. Was one, oh, by the way, it's one of the funniest things is that we played this show. And then after the show that we were playing, this band Two Gallants was going to play, but they didn't tell us that they were going to play. So we were like a little salty about it. So we end up like rolling to this party. I don't remember it that way. I dressed as the Punisher. So all I had on was a black t-shirt and jeans and stuff like that. But I rolled to a party with James, who was the Silver Surfer. And he had like a bald cap and total silver body paint on. And it was not a costume party at all. Oh, my God. It's like the most awkward, like, rolling in, like, hey, everybody. And we didn't know any of the people there. And it was just like, oh, because it was a couple of days before Halloween. It was not. It was not on Halloween. It was like the Friday or Saturday before Halloween. Yeah. That's <laughs> oh, awesome. Yeah, Yo, you know what's really dope about this song that doesn't get, you know, any trash talked on it? Why doesn't the the omnipresent cowbell in this like this doesn't this doesn't get any of the like more cowbell jokes, but the cowbell's a omnipresent Dude, until you just said that. It's doing the yeah. in the right I'd never heard that until just now. Yeah, it's you'll not. Wow, man. I mean, 
there's so much going on. There's so many perco- yeah. so many yeah. things going on in this song. It's ridiculous. Yeah. This Th- this is this is similar to aspects of Dark Side of the Moon mm-hmm, sure. where you listen to it, you've been listening to it for 30 years and you put on a pair of headphones and you discover something new just like what Phil said. I heard an auto wah guitar during the chorus doing this little counter melody off in, in the right channel. Never heard it before. And he was just like that's the bomb. Just the gift that keeps on giving. So, I mean, it it makes sense though that mixed incorrectly, mm-hmm. this could have been a mess. This whole album could have been a mess mixed oh, yeah. incorrectly because there's so much stuff going on. You get everything cranked in the mix, or you get you know it's a certain elements too high in the mix, and it's going to sound really jumbled, really muddy, and really terrible. This song, along with Billy Jean, is. People have pointed out that this was a turn in Michael Jackson's subject matter for songs to a more paranoid style of songwriting in general. Apparently, he was really struggling with fame and really struggling with being famous and being noticed. And then he put out Thriller and (laughs) never was able to be a normal person again. But... This is going to be this week's edition of Tom Tries to Justify Why I Got a Degree in English. There's the line where he's basically talking about nothing's going to save you from the beast with 40 eyes. Like, that's not a scary thing, a beast with 40 eyes, unless you're worried about constantly being under scrutiny and everybody watching you all the time. And, like, you know, granted, it wasn't written by him, but I still think that I'm going to throw that out there, that that was like a Michael Jackson struggling with fame thing. And then Billie Jean was apparently written because he had a problem with obsessive fans stalking him and, you know, just being super weird, not letting him live his life. And... Michael Jackson turned into a fucking weirdo. Everybody knows. And we're going to stay away from all the Michael Jackson is a pervert weirdo shit that's out there. There's a lot out there. You can get that from some other source. But if you've been famous from the time you're six, you don't have a a chance of being a normal person in any way, shape, or form. And then there's dudes like Quincy Jones who are like, you gotta, you gotta sing your, you gotta sing your backups through this cardboard tube or this can't be a hit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I got a question. I'm glad that came up because <laughs> the timeless tube. That is the, the timeless, timeless tube. tube. That's yes, is that where we got tube. that? Totally, so, totally where we got the timeless yeah. tube. Okay, because yeah. he sings Don't Think Twice on Billy Jean through a long cardboard tube. So listeners go and listen to that. It's kind of sounds like it once you know that that he sings it through a long cardboard tube. And we and we, Ooh, yeah, 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 in our in our band, the Chop, back in the day, we were obsessed with the timeless tube. We thought we it was a joke, but it was also serious that we were just trying to record everything in that kind everything, of silly everything way. Everything got a chance through the tube, right? Yeah, <laughs> everything got a chance through the timeless tube. Spoiler alert: none of it was actually all that timeless. No, no. <laughs> the only reason it was timeless is because I was on drums. So. <laughs> All right, before we move on, well done. I am one who complains about long outros a lot and the lengths of songs a lot. I got to say, minute 30 outro of a six-minute song, one quarter of the song is outro, still fucking works. Way to go. You do you, Michael. It works great. <laughs> I don't want to drag on this song much longer, but do we know if they had in, if they had envisioned the 14-minute movie when they were writing this? Like, did they... 
because I think, or, or that that came afterwards, and then they went in and remixed and looped and because ba- yeah. basically you have to take right the the themes of the song and extend them out to a 14 minute movie so they did that in post or like after the fact that was definitely not a decision that was made during the recording process of we're going to make a Got 14 okay. minute version of the song quincy jones was apparently arguing to cut time out of songs and michael was like we need to <laughs> we need to keep time in so that i can have time to get my dance bust right. a move here yeah let's go on to the next song that we're going to do on our list which is human nature Picked this is one of the worst songs on the album. It's, it's pretty. It's still pretty damn good. Yeah, I mean, if I wrote this song, I would be like, "Yo, guys, how are you gonna help me sell this song to somebody who's gonna like <laughs> actually make some real money with it?" <laughs> yeah, I I wrote, and this could be said of some other tracks on the record too, but it's so subtly polyrhythmic, and the percussion that's going on there is is subtle, but it's it's got an African quality to it. But mm-hmm. then there's all the other instrumentation is giving. It counter rhythms. It's it's really interesting, but understated. I like the way that the intro. I, I wouldn't have thought of it as a polyrhythm, so I think it's interesting that you've sort of pointed it out that way. But I like the intro and the way it seems so odd versus the rest of the song, and and it, and it sort of functions as almost like a bridge when it comes back. It's like this real stark change. So you talk about this being really almost like covertly polyrhythmic it makes sense this is a steve piccaro song but steve piccaro and jeff piccaro the drummer from toto steve piccaro's the the piano keys player from toto like they grew up playing music together and so i'm sure like i mean jeff piccaro is an amazing drummer and so i'm sure that that sort of polyrhythmic sense was just baked into everything that he did and apparently he tried to pitch this song to toto for years and they're like nope not interested at oh, all. Really? We're trying to do some rock stuff. This could yeah. totally be a Toto song. Oh, now 100%. that you say that, yeah, because it did, does have a little of Africa in it for sure. Yep. Yeah. Totally. And but they were trying to go in a more rock direction, and they were not interested in uh, in this. And so he brought it to Michael Jackson, and pff, I think it was a pretty good move on his part. Yeah. That's interesting. So I didn't realize that because I was thinking of the connection of the African rhythms of African music kind of referencing in my mind that Mike, you know, the the first song on the album, Want to Be Starting Something, which I think has this overtly African chant, right, that I think Mike Michael picked up from some some bit of African music. I'm not sure the whole provenance, right? So I was thinking of that and that I'd heard he was influenced by African music at that time. 
Yeah, and you know, I don't know how much say Michael had in the instrumentation of these songs, but I don't think it was that much. But even if you don't have the knowledge to say, oh, you should play a different chord here on the synth or whatever, rhythm is so universal that I could see him being like, we, we got to insert some of these rhythms. Well, but I it, think a lot of that did come from Jeff Picard. It also seems really, really clear that the way his ears worked, like he didn't need to be able to play the keyboard to be like, yo, that's the wrong chord. That's the right chord, but also you're going to want to add this note. Ah, you know, like... Right, yeah, yeah. Like, that that seems like a conversation he was very capable of having, regardless of his sort of sure. formal education on the topic. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. Even for a low point, this is still damn good. Speaking of low uh, there, point... There's some corny hit, instrumentation, we didn't but... Hit that stu- we didn't talk about that stupid low note McCartney hits on Girl Is Mine. Oh. The Girl Is Mine. <laughs> <laughs> I think I I think I made fun oh, of that in my intro mine. to the song. <laughs> well, do you want to talk about yet another like there's some there's some creep factor lyrics on this album in general. The girl is mine is definitely some creep factor you know, looking at it through the lens of like, well, maybe she should make the decision and you don't get to decide who the girl wants to be, but there's a line in Human Nature, see that girl, she knows I'm watching, she likes the way I stare. It's like, no, she doesn't. She definitely <laughs> does not like the way you stare. <laughs> like I get it. You're Michael Jackson. You're famous and everything like that. But yeah, that no no girl has ever been like that. Man is staring at me. <laughs> I'm so yeah. turned on. Yeah. At the most, they're like, I wish that that attractive man would stop being so creepy. <laughs> Tom, can you English major me on "You're a vegetable"? You're a vegetable. They hate you. You're a vegetable. <laughs> yeah, I got nothing on that. At all. So Maybe dumb. I should have gone to more of my, uh, you know, 19th century American lit classes or something like that. I but mean, no, it, it's I, terrible. But again, though, I mean, is that taken away from your enjoyment of that song at all, though? It actually it hasn't. It makes me enjoy it a little bit more. I'm like, oh, that's dumb and kind of like inoffensively dumb. All right, let's move on. Yeah, it's great. That was the uh, Jehovah's Witness in him. He couldn't say anything mean, so he called people vegetables. <laughs> you get the vegetable out of my house, you vegetable. <laughs> What? <laughs> well, I also like how the lyrics in the song are all entirely disposable, with the exception of the line, they tell me that is human nature. Because does he do me that way? Why, why? They tell me that is human mm-hmm. nature. Why, why? Does he do me that way? That could just be nonsense, and in fact is nonsense a couple of times <laughs> on the song. He throws in nonsense. You don't even notice it. You don't even notice it. He's actually just throwing in nonsense. Well, I mean, he's dropping chamois all over bed. I mean, it's like it's like every 12th word. It's fucked up. Chamois. I believe it's pronounced chamon. Yeah, I always thought it was chamon. Yeah. But oh, uh, well. Uh, Anything else that we want to say about this song? Very pleasant song, but still one of my low points on the album. I guess my only comment on this song, this is, this is going to be an actual criticism of this record. I think this song would have been better served maybe being positioned somewhere else on the record. I feel like, you know, hmm. it's like it's like, it's like like the slow one, you know? It's sort of like the refresher. Uh, it's like a bridge of a song. Maybe, maybe it could have been somewhere else. I don't know. You know what? I will agree with you on that because if they had moved this song to second to last on the album, you would have had in a row Thriller, Beat It, Billie Jean, Pretty Young Thing. And that Ooh, is wee. that's stacked. That's a that run. Is Damn. Stacked. Yeah. That's a run. Um, but instead, they put Human Nature and then Pretty Young Thing and then the closing song on the album, 
the lady in my life. This doesn't sound like it should have been sung by Michael McDonald and also still sucked. <laughs> oh, I, I said it sounded like a, a B-side off Stevie Wonder's talking book. Oh, yeah, I get that, too. I, I, get I that feel too. like this was like a hedge. This is the song that I feel like if this whole album flopped, this could have been played on like R&B, like smooth jazz radio. And it no yeah. doubt did. Right. But like this goes right against any George Benson song being released in 1983. They were trying to corner the uh, father daughter wedding dance uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. demographic. <laughs> <laughs> Before Luther Vandross came out. <laughs> uh. Yeah. So there is something in this song. I think let me get the, it's. It's like basically when they come out of the first verse, the beat drops. The beat drops right around 1.30. And I swear, this is the genesis of Dick in a Box. Right here at 1.30. <laughs> it sounds just like a dick in a, my Dick in a Box. Lay back in my tenderness. Let's make this a night we won't forget. pocket you know what i mean like it's like i'm right there can we get timberlake on yeah timberlake <laughs> let us know right in <laughs> justin text me on my personal show. number you don't have to call my assistant you just come right to me personally right <laughs> i'm giving you permission <laughs> this has some nice bass work in here i will say that i do appreciate some of the bass work in here i mean it's it's not a standout song i i like it it gets a little funky uh, it's a little long, but you know, MJ, you're MJ, do whatever the hell you want. Yeah. It's Lewis Johnson playing the bass on this song. And I would agree. It's good. It's organic as opposed to a lot of the bass feel on this album being not organic. Lewis Johnson is also the one who wrote, uh, who played the bass line for Billie Jean and did quite quote unquote, write the bass line for Billie Jean. But as Rob pointed out, that was kind of crib from another song anyway. Mm-hmm. My only note here is that like you're telling me that you guys worked on 21 worse songs than this in this recording session. There were 21 worse songs than this. That's an interesting way to I look at it. I will say this. This is interesting. Just to maybe understand where the line is. There's a song called Carousel, which is on like the 
CD release of Thriller. It's like an extra cut, right? Because I guess I could get a little more material on there or something. It's like not even two minutes long, and it's fucking garbage. It's so clear why it's not on the record. Like, if this was last cut, it's so clear why it got cut. So maybe, like, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know why the other songs got cut, but yeah. I like what you said, that they were thinking all singles, but not necessarily all singles on the same radio station. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it just, again, I feel like we're talking shit on some of these songs, and it's just in comparison, because it's really not that bad of a song. It's an inoffensive song. It's not a bad song, but you put it up against these heavyweights, and it just clearly is not punching the, yeah, uh, the same weight no, class. No doubt. This this is not Thriller or Want to Be Starting Something or <laughs> Beat It. You're sitting there on the same side with what might be the most successful single ever produced. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's no way it's, it's ever going to compare. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Are you talking about Billie Jean or are you talking about Beat It? Because, like, right. they're both on this side. And I feel like Billie Jean was, like, the number two single of the year um, in terms of sales. And Beat It was, like, number nine single of the year. But we didn't talk about this before. One of the interesting things. So this album won seven Grammys. One of the Grammys that it won was Best Rock vocal performance for beat it for michael jackson and that was a big effing deal that a black artist won best rock and that was the official you have crossed over you are dominating pan genre because i think billy jean won for best r&b vocal performance so he went for best r&b vocal performance and best rock vocal performance well, there you go. in the same year badass and billy jean is de- or uh, sorry beat it is definitely a rock song it's definitely Agreed. a rock song it and it shreds to this day, like the kind of slight hitch in that. It's a great riff. It's an iconic yeah. guitar riff. Yeah. Iconic. It's so fun to play, and you can't play it totally straight. You got to swing it a little bit for it to have the mm-hmm. right feel to it. Absolutely killer. And I think that you there is a strong case to be made that this is what officially just destroyed the color barrier in music and said rock fans like black artists pop fans like black artists r&b fans like black artists everybody likes artists for the art that they put out and not necessarily the demographic that they come from because not long after this we started getting hip-hop coming through and hip-hop took a while to break through into mainstream popularity but you would be you'd be looked at with like you'd be looked at like you were some kind of crazy white separatist nowadays if you're like there should be a black artist billboard chart and a white artist billboard chart like it's so antiquated i think but that's not but not at the time what was going on yeah right they had just stopped calling it like the black charts and the white charts when they were like it's the r&b charts and the rock charts but they were the same damn thing basically it's just (laughs) a different reskinning of the same concept and he was the guy that said fuck that concept i am going to just make great music and everybody's gonna love it and they did now let's find out if we do I I think that well, I'm in suspense here. Let's throw it around the room. It's time for our vote, Adam. Yeah, Rob said something right at the top. He called this an immaculate album, and I agree. It, it deserves its spot in history. Uh, sometimes pop fails to live up to uh, 
musical standards, right? Like it might be popular, but it might not have a lot of depth and and uh, complexity. This does. So it from both a, a sales standpoint, from an artistic standpoint, uh, a sonic standpoint, everything about this album, again, n- nearly perfect in my mind. So it's an obvious yes. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, obviously I agree with everything Adam said. I think this, this does a, an impeccable job of sort of not only pushing new boundaries, but, but also just being fun to listen to. It has crazy density from a musical standpoint. I like that word immaculate. Uh, even right down to like the cover art, right? Doesn't like on the old LP, it would fold open. So it was like Michael Jackson laying there in like a white suit <laughs> and like a black background. It's just everything about it is just like, just badass, right? Yeah. So this is, this is obviously an easy yes. Uh, so. Yeah, it's an easy yes for me as well. You cannot possibly call yourself a music fan and not give this a hard listen on a decent set of headphones. Do yourself that favor. For all the reasons that were mentioned, the density of the production where you can keep discovering new things, the songwriting, how it un- how the songs unfold. You know, We didn't really go deep on the most successful songs, but even the lesser songs, they still are constructed both from a songwriting perspective and a arrangement and production perspective. And it's all in the context of pop. Like you said, it's fun to listen to. It's easy to listen to. It's easy to like. Absolutely listen to it. I Listen, I clearly agree, even though my vote at this point is just academic. I will agree with everything you said. I'm going to throw in one more thing. I think it still sounds pretty damn modern. Yeah. And if you were to play one of these songs right now, it hangs in there with anything getting put out by like Beyonce or anything getting put out by modern pop music. I think this still hangs with it. You throw Billie Jean up there, even if I didn't know it as Billie Jean, I would still be like, this song rips. It's super well produced. I love the throwback synth sound. This sounds great. This is this is fantastic. Who is this guy? Right? If I was some freaking alien or like living in a cave or like, you know, one of the Sentinelese on that island off of the coast of India that has never had contact with the outside world, uh, you play me this song, I'd be like, this is pretty damn good. This is a pretty good song. It's a good pull on the Sentinelese there. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Search that Wikipedia article on it. I was going to say I'm going to Google that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they're that f- tribe that famously kills anybody who comes near. Oh, them. I do remember seeing a yeah. story about that. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, so, yeah, because that, sorry, yeah, I agree, because that wraps back to something you said at the top that has had me thinking in the background, Tom, which is that so much, everyone. so much <laughs> of music since then has been based on this. Like, I found, you know, whether it's drum sounds or how to produce or how to make a tight rhythm guitar, I mean, God, did we not spend enough time on the rhythm guitar? Just all throughout this album is amazing. So crisp. Yeah, it's really good. And it's meant to be a background. It's meant to just like lay in the background. It's so good. We we literally, three of the people on this podcast literally sang into a tube, into a microphone, because they thought maybe that'll make it good. It <laughs> 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 takes a little bit more, apparently, but uh, yeah, there's a little more to it than that. It still worked. So that's our final vote thriller mj rest in power he died i think just short of 51 years old kind of turned into a tragic figure later in life again you can't ever be normal again after you make thriller and he was young what was he 24 when he put out thriller like 26 something like that like 
again, you can't ever go back to a normal life after that. And he hadn't had a particularly normal life living up to that. And he went from like being famous to being world infamous. Everybody knows who Michael Jackson is. If you go on like one of those you know, eco-poverty tours through Southeast Asia that some people like to do where they're like, I'm going to go hike through the rice paddies or something like that. And you talk to people who live with their water buffalo and they are completely as far disconnected from your Western world as humanly possible. And you say Michael Jackson, they'll be like, Thriller? Hell yeah. Thriller's (laughs) a damn good album. It is that popular. Good on you, Michael. You made some great art. Maybe made some questionable choices later in life. We'll move on past that and say, you're on the list. If the list was only full of good people, it'd be a very short list. So do you agree with us? Do you disagree with us? Do you think Thriller has no business being on a list of 1001 albums? You must hear before you die because seven of the nine songs on it were singles and you could hear them in that format. You can let us know. Drop us a line, 1001 album complaints at gmail.com. 1001 album complaints at gmail.com. Let us know who you are, where you're listening from, and what you think about us. And if you like what we're doing, you can leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to this podcast on. Or you can, more importantly, tell a friend that there are a bunch of dudes out there that like to get together and talk for an hour and a half about music. And then after the call is over, still talk about music with each other for, you know, (laughs) probably about another 20 minutes before we realize we have to wrap it up. (laughs) The only thing left for us to do is to get our homework assignment for next week. I have the Albinator here. It's going to be pretty hard for it to spit out another Stone Cold Jammer like uh, it put out this week. But let's see what it has in store for us, please. I'm going to give it a spin. So drum roll, please. We will be listening to... The album is Hearts and Bones by Paul Simon. I'm familiar with Paul Simon. I have no idea what is on Hearts yeah, and Bones. Yeah, I don't know that album at all. I don't know it either. Should Hearts and Bones. be interesting. I mean, I, I generally like Paul Simon. Um, yeah, me too. Yeah. You know what? I'm pulling up the track list on Hearts and Bones, and I don't recognize a single song off of here. So I'm actually pretty excited about that. 83, so right on the heels of this right album. Or maybe simul- November 83, so a year yeah. after Thriller. Yeah, year maybe after it's thriller. a bunch of Thriller-esque songs. When this, when did, when song about the moon. Synth. I think that's a werewolf song, of course. Just, you know? Is this right before right after Graceland? Do you know when Graceland came out? It would have been uh, before. Graceland. Yeah. yeah, Graceland came out in, what, like 86 or 87 or something like that? 86, Graceland, yeah. So this is one right before that. If you look at the cover of this album, it looks like one of those like bumpers <laughs> for Saturday shots. Night Live, yes. like they would show. Right Phil Hartman. So he yeah. looks at the camera. <laughs> He's a famous friend of the show. So, yes. yeah. Awesome! I am excited for that. I like Paul Simon. I think he's got a great voice and he's a good storyteller. So, interested to see what everyone thinks about that next week. And until then, thank you for listening. I have been Tom. I'm Adam. I am Phil. And I'm Rob. Boosh!